This is a message from Grace Church, located in Frisco, Texas, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. Grace Church is affiliated with Sovereign Grace Ministries. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. The speaker for this message is Craig Cabanis, the senior pastor of Grace Church. In 1965, the, the birds took Pete Seeger's song and made it popular, the song Turn, 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 where they actually essentially took the lyrics uh, straight out of Ecclesiastes 3. So in a time of turbulence and throwing off all authority, somebody was singing about the authority of God's Word, so that's not too bad. Kind of thankful for that. But uh, anyway, it's a poem uh, that is a powerful poem, but it's a poem that finds itself in a context. And if we don't think about the context, we could miss the point of the poem. Um, And then we're going to read the poem here in a second, then we're going to read the verses that come after it, that tell us how to respond to this poem that Ecclesiastes wrote. Here's the background to the poem. What we've covered, I'm gonna, in about 60 seconds, I'm going to tell you what we've covered in three weeks of messages in chapters 1 and 2. We meet this guy named Ecclesiastes. He calls himself the preacher. He sounds a whole lot like, uh, like Solomon. His life mirrors Solomon, though he never says it's Solomon. It could very well be because it sure sounds like him. And uh, what he says is that I looked at the world and um, I found that everything's meaningless. Vanity of vanities. Everything's vapor. You can't, it's just here for a moment. It, you can't really grasp onto it. That You don't ever make any real progress in your life. You just run through these cycles and do the same thing over and over and over and nothing's really accomplished. And so he's describing life, what he calls under the sun, says this a ton of times under the sun. So he is looking at life apart from God. And he's saying, I could find no meaning. He says, I had all of these houses. Uh, I, I was king. I had power. Um, I had gardens. I had a workforce that worked for me, slaves actually that worked for me. Uh, he says, I had, um, uh, I had music. I had gold. I had livestock. Uh, if it is Solomon, he had 700 wives and 300 concubines, so I, I had wine. So he had literally wine, women, and song, the passage says, and all the wealth imaginable, and he said it was all meaningless to me. It's all meaningless because I'm going to have to pass it on to somebody. I'm going to die. I can't take it with me. Um, and so really, it's all meaningless. Last week, we looked at the end of chapter 2 where a ray of hope comes in, and, and this is what he says. Ecclesiastes says this, that he said, what I learned was that apart from God, you can't enjoy anything. So now he's talking about not life under the sun, but above the sun, so to speak. He's talking about life with God. And he says, what I found out from God is that with God, you can enjoy your eating and your drinking and your toil, your work. So what he came back to say was the basics of life can be filled with joy if we know God, if we see that God has given us these things in life, and if we acknowledge him and receive his gift, not only the gifts of what he provides in people and jobs and money and possessions, not only enjoying the gifts of what he provides, but the ability to enjoy what he provides, the ability to enjoy our work is a gift as well. And so he sees that all as a gift. And he says, God is the one who gives us enjoyment in our lives when we are able to see that he is the one that is over all of our lives. In other words, he kind of says this. When he looked at life under the sun, he said, nothing matters. Nothing matters. But when he looked at life, and the phrase he uses at the end of two is from the hand of God. When he looked at life under the sun, nothing matters. When he looked at life from the hand of God, everything matters. There's value in everything. 
There can be joy in everything, is what he says. And that's the context. In God, everything matters. There can be joy in something as simple as eating and drinking. And then that is the context for what comes next, the poem, in chapter 3, verse 1. For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to seek and a time to lose, a time to keep and a time to cast away, a time to tear and a time to sow, a time to keep silence and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. What gain has the worker from his toil? I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity in man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceived that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. I perceived that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. That which is already has been. That which is to be already has been. And God seeks what has been driven away. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this passage of Scripture and what it communicates to us. And we pray that you would open our eyes to see you. Lord, your word here speaks of our taking joy in the, in the events of our lives. And we pray that we would see you and that through seeing you, we would connect you. We would see how you're connected to all of our life. And we would indeed find deep joy, not in temporary pleasures, but in the enduring relationship we have with you. God, I pray that you would strengthen the weary here today and comfort the grieving and encourage the discouraged. Pray that your spirit would be poured out upon us all, that we might turn to Christ afresh today and celebrate your grace, whatever time we find ourselves in. Give us grace to do so, Lord. Move among us in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you wouldn't have to be a literary uh, major, a literature major, to discern the point of the poem. The poem's about time. In verses 2 through 8, time is mentioned 28 times. Four times a verse. Seven verses, four times a verse, time is is uh, mentioned. So even if you didn't like English or you didn't like the poetry section in your high school class of English, you are, I and I am wise enough to pick up that this is about time because he keeps saying time, 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 time. But it's not just time. There's more to it than that. He's saying that there is a time for everything, verse 1, that there is a season for everything. So there are different seasons. And then he walks through 28 times and says, there's a season for this. There's a season for that. A time for this and a time for that. So he not only says there is time, but he says there's appropriate times for different things. 
Now, is he saying anything more than that? Because if that's all he's saying, the poem's not especially meaningful, is it? I mean, just to say, you know, there's a time for this and a time for that. Okay, that, that's a good observation. But is he giving us more than an observation? What is he saying so that there is meaning in this observation? Is he calling us to action? It is, a, is it a poem that is sort of our marching orders? calling us, giving us a trumpet call to go and do something. Well, I think it does call us to do something, but I don't think that's really what's... It's not giving us marching orders. It's not a poem about what you're supposed to go out and do right now in the times of life. Maybe it's a poem about how to know the times, how to discern the times. So if I can discern the times, then I'll know what to do. I don't think that's it either. Matter of fact, I don't really think it's a poem about what we do. We've had two chapters about what man does under the sun and have seen the utter meaninglessness of it all. And now Solomon has turned and said, when we see God and a vision of God, then we're able to have joy in our lives, in the things we do. We look to God and receive his joy and have purpose in what we do. I don't think it's a poem about what we do. I think it's a poem about what God does. It's a poem about God. It's a poem about his being the overseer of our times. It's a poem that says, really, God rules the seasons of our lives. God rules the seasons of our lives. The preacher has not taken the end of chapter 2 to get us to look upward to derive our joy in God, to now turn in one verse later to look downward and to forget about the fact he exists. Rather, he is calling us to have a vision for all of our lives by seeing that God is the God over the seasons of our lives. Verse 1, for everything there is a season. The word season, it means a fixed or an appointed time. God is the God of the seasons naturally. There's a fixed and appointed time for winter and spring and summer and fall. And so there's a fixed and appointed time for differing things to happen in our lives. Everything matters and God is in all of it. It's really a poem, and, the, and I'm going to show this in the passage here in just a second, but it's really a poem reflecting on the sovereignty of God, which means God is over all. God controls all. And the great hope of it is that God is in all seasons of our lives. And frankly, this is, we've been talking about joy last week, and we're going to talk about joy this week. This is the secret to joy, a secret of joy. I didn't title the message that way because we because I don't like that title, The Secret of Joy. But this, that's what it is. He's really giving a secret of joy, and it's a secret that many miss. Many, man by nature resists the idea of a sovereign God. Absolutely. Man by nature does not want to be ruled. Man by nature does not want to submit to a creator. So naturally, we chafe against this doctrine, this idea. And there is much mystery in it, to be sure. This poem doesn't answer all the mystery of God's rulership. But the Bible, from the first verse to the last verse, talks about the rulership of God. It's a, it's a whole book about God and what he does and how we can know him. It starts, God created, Genesis 1-1, God created the heavens and the earth. It's God who starts everything, God who creates everything, and God who oversees the seasons of the planet and the seasons of our lives. The Bible ends with a view of an emphasis of God in the book of Revelation, where he promises to come quickly. 
Jesus says. So it's really a poem that talks about God's work in differing ways, differing seasons. here's, Here's where I get that. First of all, in the poem itself, from the word season, which means a fixed time, but secondly, in the poem itself, look at verse two, a time to be born and a time to die. Um, that's not marching orders. You did not determine the time of your birth. You will not determine the time of your death. That is God who oversees that time. And when he gives these opposites, a time for birth and a time for, for death, it, what he's doing is he's get, using a, uh, a poetic um, tool or a, a poetic tool called a merism. A merism is when you give two opposites, and by the two opposites you mean everything in between is included. So God created the heavens and the earth and everything else that's imaginable. He's not just saying he created those two things. Or, you know, uh, come to the circus, uh, it's fun for the young and the old. Does that mean if you're middle-aged, don't come to the circus? Does it just mean if you're under 10 or if you're over whatever is old? I'm not going to give a number. But if you're old, whatever that number is, no. It's fun for the young and the old means everybody. And so when he says it's a time for life, there's a time for death, God, God is the one who sets those times. And all of our lives between birth and death ultimately are in God's hands. Our times are in his hands. And not only that, but the way he tells us afterwards how, uh, how we're to think about this. Look at verse 11, for instance. Verse 11, he has made everything beautiful in its time. This is about God's actions. God gives times, and God makes them beautiful. We'll talk about that in a second, in his time. Or look at verse 14. This is really the conclusion to our response to the poem. Verse 14, I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. What's he saying? God does it. It's, it's to lift our eyes to see the activity of God. It's to lift our faith to see the activity of God. And in so doing, we will find joy. If we find passivity, we don't understand the sovereignty of God. If we find hopelessness and despair, we don't understand the sovereignty of God. If we, if we find a listlessness and a lifelessness, we do not understand the, the sovereignty of God. But as we're going to see in these verses, if we understand the sovereignty of God, we will find joy and a heart to do good, is what he says, as long as we live. That is the result, that is the intended result of seeing God over all. So let's look at, I'm not going to break each of these phrases down in great detail. Uh, they're pretty self-explanatory, and, and I almost feel like to analyze each line in some ways takes away from the beauty and the power of the whole. So I want us to look at the forest, and we'll mess around with the trees a little bit, but primarily we're going to look at the forest, and then we'll, we'll go into detail about the application. Verse 2, he says, a time to be born and a time to die, which I already mentioned. Our, our lives are, he's saying our life is in his hands. A time to plant and a time to pluck up. There's times when God is, in a similar way, birthing things, planting. There's the season of harvest, and there's that. There's a season of planting and a season of harvest, and that's true in our lives as well. There's seasons of planting in our lives, and there's seasons of plucking up uh, what is planted. There's a time to kill and a time to heal. We might react to that and say, well, that can't be God. We often have a one-sided view of God. Um, We often have a view of God that we prefer, the way we like to think about him. Um, But the scripture says that we must, or or the truth is we must submit ourselves to scripture. Um, Consider this verse, for instance, Deuteronomy 32. 
God says, see now that I, even I, am he, and there is no God beside me. I kill and make alive, I wound and heal. There is none that can deliver out of my hand. Uh, we read the Old Testament and we see God uh, destroying his enemies at points as, as, as Israel goes into the uh, promised land, Canaan. And those aren't easy verses. I don't talk about those verses tritely. They're not easy to understand. There's not simple answers. There's real mystery in why God does what he does. And that mystery uh, is to remind us that he is God and we are not. So, but, but clearly there is a time where God kills in the Bible. God kills his own son. And that through his death, we may have life. Through his death, we may have forgiveness. Um, others, others, it is their hands that physically killed Jesus. But Acts 2 makes it clear that it was the will and the, the plan of God, the Father, that his son die at their hands. So we can say people killed Jesus, but ultimately, God the Father is the one who ensured that he would die on a cross. A time to kill, a time to heal A time to break down and a time to build up. We see that in our lives. Things are torn down at times and built back up. A time, verse 4, a time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. These go together, don't they? A time to weep and a time to mourn. There's times in our lives where we grieve and where there is loss, and that is a time to weep. And we don't weep hopelessly. We don't grieve hopelessly. We grieve, hopefully, knowing that God is with us even in our sorrow. One of the things about this that is so beautiful and so powerful in my mind is that it is that God is with us in all seasons. That it's not, sometimes we feel like, well, when I'm joyful, God is there. And when I'm sad, God is not there. But God is there with us at all times. If you're a believer, God lives in you. His word is with us at all times, speaking to us. So God is with us in the mourning. God is with us in the crying. God is with us in the weeping. And God as well, what else does it say, verse 4? Is with us in the laughing and in the dancing. So there is a time to weep. God brings seasons in our lives where we're broken, where someone we love dies, where something tragic happens. But God's not absent. God's not off at a distance. He is the one who determines the seasons. And he is with us. And remember, he makes everything beautiful in its time we just read. A time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones. It's probably an agricultural metaphor uh, that when you wanted to plant, you had to to cast away, you had to get all the stones out of the field. And then uh, sometimes they would gather stones as well. Gather stones to stop erosion on a hillside was one thing they would do or various other reasons they might gather stones, uh, the Hebrews. But there's a time to, it's kind of agricultural again, get ready to plant and a time to do something else with those stones. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. And uh, from what we read about Solomon, uh, there was a lot of times he should have been refraining from embracing, and he wasn't. So there's a time to embrace, there's a time not to embrace. There's a certain person to embrace, and there's people not to embrace. Uh, God ordains. um, God ordains our relationships. God ordains our marriages. A time to seek and a time to lose, verse 6. And there's a time to go after something. If you can't find your car keys, keep looking. There's a time to seek something, and there's a time to lose. I mean, there's a time in life where you say, I've been pursuing and seeking this, and I don't think that's what the Lord has. You know, I think there's a time to call it lost and trust him. Not people. I'm not talking about people. Call them lost. But I'm saying there's a time to to let things go and say, Lord, I trust you. And there's a time to say, I'm going, I'm looking 
God does that in our lives in differing times. There's a time to keep and there's a time to cast away. There's a time to tear and a time to sow. Uh, that's probably about mourning as well, by the way. When someone would die, they would tear. You would tear your garment as a Hebrew. And then when the time of grief was over, the time of mourning was over, you would sew it back up. And that would be a, a statement that you were no longer in an official time of mourning. Even though you missed your loved one or whatever, the, the formal time of mourning was over. We don't really have something like that in our culture, do we? And so it's really awkward. People are supposed to be happy all the time. And uh, after the funeral, it's, you know, let's get on with life. But, but um, I think the Hebrew mind understood this, and certainly God's mind understood this better. Boy, there are seasons where, because of the work of God, grief is appropriate, and, and he is with us and comforting us in our grief. That's what the Holy Spirit is, does. He's the comforter. He brings comfort in our grief. So there's a time to grieve is what he's saying. And then there's a time not to forget someone and say, well, I'm just moving on. But there's a time to sew up the garment and say, by faith... There's more, to, there's more ahead in our life, and we're moving on trusting God in faith because he's with us in our mourning when our garment's ripped, and he's with us when it's sewn up as well. There's a time to keep silence and a time to speak. M- most of the trouble I get in is because I don't know which is which. Um, and a lot of times I should have kept silent, and there's probably a lot of times I should speak up. But based on what God is doing, there's times for us to remain in silence and in awe before him. And there's times to address situations as well. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. Those are parallel as well. So he he gives us all of these variety of experiences in life. And he ultimately teaches us that that God is with us in it all. Is there any kind of order as we go through verses 2 through 8? Can we mark things out? There's a few times I said that's kind of parallel. But can we mark things out? I was looking at that this week and I couldn't see that. And I read a commentator and I thought it was a brilliant comment. He said, if the order of things happening except from life and death, the first verse. But if everything else appears kind of random, it's supposed to. Because that's how life comes at us. Life doesn't come at us with points A, B, and C, subpoint 1 and 2 below it. Life just comes at us, and at times it feels random, and at times it feels like I don't even know what season I'm in. Is this time to laugh or a time to cry? I, I, don't, I don't even know. What, what kind of a season is this? But the reality is God is in all the seasons, and God ordains the seasons. God oversees the seasons. God loves us and cares for us in the seasons. God is revealed to us in Scripture in a primary way in the New Testament as the Father who cares for his children. That's how we see him in the seasons. God is the shepherd who tends his sheep. God is the one who is near us in all of our seasons of life. So how do we respond to this poem? Do we just say that's interesting? That's fascinating. Yeah, am I, what season am I in? I think I'm in verse 4 point B. I, I don't think so. I, I, think, I think here's how we respond. I think, first of all, we enjoy God's sovereignty. Enjoy. Have joy in our hearts in the sovereignty of God. He appoints our times. He acts according to his will. And guess what? That's not a concern for, that's not a matter of concern. That's a matter of joy. If you could say, let me script my life, and I'm going to script the way I think everything should go in my life. Every dream you have. You know what you'd probably script? 
Well, you'd probably script Ecclesiastes chapter 2. Solomon's life, right? A lot of people, that's the American dream, man. That's what I want. I'll take Ecclesiastes 2, and here's where you would end up. Vanity of vanities. It's all meaningless. But if we could see the script of God's plan for our life, the script, even the difficulties, Jeff's introduction to the song we sang this morning, he just said that. I said, we could go home. That's the sermon. It was powerful. It was one of the best introductions I've ever heard to a song in my life. That was powerful. That's the point, is that we're jarred by saying difficulties come, and we're looking to God and thanking him for them. But the reality is he is in those difficulties. And if we could see God script our life, difficulties, blessings, and all, we'd look back and say, that plan is, well, it's perfect. Because God knows you better than you know yourself. God loves you. He would script even the difficulties, even these times of, of tearing up and these times of mourning and these times of weeping and these times of not embracing and these times of losing. All of these times, God is in them with us, revealing himself to us, showing us his care and showing us his power. See, to say that God is sovereign is not, is, is not to produce depression. It's the foundation of joy. Because who's going to script a better life for you? You or someone else or God Almighty, who is perfect and all-knowing and holy and gracious and merciful and kind. Who's got a better plan? Solomon had the best human plan going. He had everything. And now he's mirroring and showing us what God is like. If God rules over the seasons, look at verse 9. What gain is there a, has the worker from his toil? Earlier in the book, he said nothing. There's no gain in our toil. Verse 10, I have seen the business that God has given us, the children of man to be busy with. He said that before. I've seen everything we do. And there's, there's no joy in it is what he says. But look at verse 11. He has made everything beautiful in its time. He's saying God is the God of seasons, of our seasons. God is the God of our times, and he makes everything beautiful in its time. Paul says it this way, God works everything for our good. To those who know him and are called according to his purpose, God works everything for our good. He makes it beautiful. When we think of the word beautiful, we usually think of something visual. But the word beautiful can be used in differing ways, and it's probably more than just visually beautiful is what he means here. God makes everything beautiful in its time. The word beautiful can mean something that's good or uh, something that's fitting. Sometimes this word means that's fitting. Or maybe you're assembling something, especially if you're like me and you're not a good assembler. And so you're assembling something for the 500th time and you've already made multiple trips and bought the wrong part every time down at Home Depot. So you're, and finally, it goes together perfectly. Say, look, that fits beautifully. You're not saying, oh, man, that is so gorgeous. You're just saying, it's fitting. When you you go and and someone presents a a meal to you, you say, that was a beautiful meal. You're not meaning that the fajitas were, like, literally attractive, that there was, though I have had, if I'm going to be honest, (laughs) another illustration. You're not going to mean that the salmon, okay, I've never, okay, salmon, that that's attractive. I, I like fish, but never, beautiful, I've never said. You're not going to say that's attractive. You're not like, oh, man, I just, there was like a romantic. No, it's not attractive. But you're saying it's a beautiful meal. It's a beautiful display. It's good. It's what? It's pleasing. It's pleasing. Beautiful can mean fitting. It can mean good. It can mean pleasing. 
It can be visually attractive as well. This is what God does in our lives. See, knowing that God determines the seasons um, and then understanding and seeing what God is doing in the seasons, those are two different things. So it takes faith to believe this. It takes faith to say there's, there's a time for this and there's a time for that, and I'd prefer I didn't have this time. I prefer I just had this time, but there's a time for both. And God's going to do what is good and fitting and pleasing and beautiful in all of those situations. That's a tremendous promise to all of us here who are Christians today. It's an often used analogy, but I find it a helpful one, that l- life is often like a tapestry. And have you ever looked at, have you ever seen the backside of a tapestry? What, what does it look like? Well, there's knots, the strings all knotted up. If you looked at the backside of a tapestry, it's a mess, it's chaos. Especially if you're not a tap, seamstress, who, who does a, a tapestry person, a seamstress, you're not the one who sews it. I mean, it looks, it's knotted up, there's strings going over it, the colors don't match, there's no design, there's no flow, you can't really see what it is, welcome to life. That's life. From our point of view, that's life. But the reality is that there's someone on the other side that is weaving, weaving a beautiful tapestry. And if you look at the back of a tapestry, if you walk around to the other side, you see a beautiful picture, a design. There's color. There's flow. It makes sense. That's God's perspective. And we don't have that perspective. Oftentimes, we just see the knots. And sometimes it's good. You go, oh, I like that blue yarn there or whatever. It looks, it looks really good at times. We can ultimately have joy even in the knots. But there's a picture on the other side that's God's picture. And God is working and weaving a glorious tapestry that is his people in a dark world, that is your individual life. He's weaving and sewing and putting it all together. And, it's, and he's going to make it beautiful in his time. Sometimes even in tragedy, there's beauty in God's presence, and God's care. We're to enjoy God's sovereignty. He goes on to say that he has given us a heart for eternity, and yet, he's put eternity in our hearts, verse 11, and yet we cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. He's speaking of this sort of frustration that we all live with. We have a heart for eternity. We want to see God. We want to see the tapestry. We want to see the full picture. We long to be with him. But this side of heaven, we don't have that. So this side of heaven, we don't know how it all works out. We don't know why everything happens. And if we sit and just spend our time wondering why, 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 we end up miserable and lost. But there's an affirmation of faith that says the Bible tells me God is good, God is faithful, God is loving, God rules, and God is in control. And there's a tapestry on the other side that I don't see, but I will see one day. And so today, in the midst of the knots and the yarn, I thank God that a good God rules over my life. And he appoints different seasons for me to know and encounter him. When we see that by faith, then we can enjoy Ecclesiastes' counsel. We can obey his counsel. Look what he says, verse 12. I perceive that there's nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift. He's saying there is joy. The fact that God rules is joyful. And we can take joy in our lives. We can take joy in the various seasons. We can take joy in the, in the promise Sometimes we don't see it, but we can take joy in the promise that God makes everything beautiful in its time.
We can take joy in the difficulty. Joy, we can eat and drink. He's going back to the basics. You can eat and drink and do your daily job and enjoy it because God is in that season. God is in that. There's a purpose to that, to bring glory to him and to serve and to love others. It's really the secret. I'm serious. It is the secret to joy. Now, it doesn't mean that we're passive. This is another misunderstanding about the doctrine of sovereignty. If God is sovereign, we'd be passive. No, I think this passage teaches God is sovereign, so go do good. That's literally what he says. Look at verse 11. I perceive there's nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Serve joyfully. Act joyfully. Give with joy. Uh, Help with joy. Reach out with joy. There's a joy in it all. There is, we are to do something. We're not to just be passive. Sovereignty never equals passivity. Sovereignty equals joyful service because God's got it all. God's in charge of it all. So we are free. There's a freedom in this, a freedom to go boldly and do good with a joyful heart. He's got it. The problem is, was when we want to run in and we got it. You ever seen this in the outfield? This happens not with just little kids, though it does happen with little kids, and it's hilarious. But it happens. I recently saw, I mean, you see this on SportsCenter. This happens in the major leagues where a guy's inching. He's playing right, but he's inching over into center. And it's really the center fielder's ball, right? And the guy looks like your son in T-ball because he's running over there like that and runs into the guy. You've seen this. It's, it's, it's like, he's got it. You're yelling, I got it. And you've run half the field over. He's got it. You don't need to run. I got it. <laughs> Collision. That's what happens. God has got it. It's our job to trust God, to enjoy his sovereignty, to obey his word, to do good as long as we live, to enjoy our eating and drinking, to care for those in need, to reach out to those who need Jesus, to spend and to invest our lives with great joy because he's got it. He's got the seasons. We don't have to run in there. I got it, God. Move out of the way. He's got it. And so there's a joyful confidence that he makes everything beautiful in his time. Listen, when we say the words, God is sovereign, that is to be so trite. God is sovereign. God is in control. We should say that with a joy in our heart. Usually with a smile on our face, though there's a time to grieve and weep, and we're not smiling. But there's a joy in our heart even in that. So we enjoy God's sovereignty, and lastly here, we trust God's sovereignty. Look at verse 14. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. Yeah, I think God's going to get his way, is what it's saying, and his way is always good. God has done it so that people fear him. People fear him. He's talking about a reverence for God, an awe of God, an amazement at God. Here's part of that wonder and mystery again. God is not manageable. God is not our servant. God is not entirely figure-outable. You can't figure him out. He's not entirely comprehensible. You can't master all the ways of God, for then you would be God. God is beyond us. And so the doctrine of God bringing this season and that season, our seasons being in his hands, a time for this and a time for that, the response should be a reverence and an awe and a wonder. Not a flow chart. Not five points of debate, six points of debate, ten ideas. No. 
It should be awe and wonder, and that's what he says. We don't really understand the seasons. I can't explain a lot. I, I find myself as a pastor sitting down with people who are going through difficult times, and I'm finding that the most common phrase is, I, I don't know. I don't know. that There's not an explanation. I don't know why that person did that. I'm sorry, but I, I can't explain why this happened to you. I, I can explain to you, though, that there is a good God who rules over all and that he's weaving a tapestry and that you and I can only see this side of it, but there's another side of it. We're sort of not only under the sun, we're like under the tapestry as well in terms of our view of knowing everything. And there's a God who is good, who calls us to do good and calls us to stand in awe. His ways are past finding out, which is not, does not mean we give up, but it means we trust and we hope. It doesn't diminish our activity, but it gives us joy in our activity. So here's the idea, is that God is in control so that we can serve joyfully in the fear of God. God is in control so we can serve joyfully in the fear of God. Here's another reason we can have joy in God acting according to his time, is that we know something that Solomon didn't know. He was the wisest man in the world, but you know something, and you know someone that he didn't know like you and I do. So he didn't know that God had a set time and what that time was to do something amazing. Listen to how Jesus ties into time. Galatians 4. Look at this. Galatians 4, verses 4 and 5. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. Galatians 4. The fullness of time. When the fullness of time had come, he sent Jesus. Or think about Mark 1.15. Jesus says, The time is fill, fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. When Jesus shows up, this is what he says, It's time. It's time. The kingdom of God is at hand. I am present. I have come to bring salvation. It's time. God sent Jesus at just the right time. John 13, um, at, the, at the last feast of the Passover, at the Lord's Supper, the Last Supper, this is what Jesus says. Now, before the feast of the Passover, John says this, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of the world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. His hour had come to depart. Jesus lived, and he knew the Father's time and the Father's hour, and he was submitted to the Father's purposes and, and there was a timing to it all. At just the right time, God sent Jesus. At just the right time, Jesus is arrested and ultimately killed. This is how Paul says that in Romans 5. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. See, Solomon didn't even imagine that. You want to talk about time? There's a time and a season and a purpose for everything under heaven. At exactly the right time, Jesus died for you and for me. And at just the right time, God opened your eyes to that gospel. At just the right time, someone brought the gospel to you. At just the right time, you responded in faith and believed in Jesus. God is never slow. God is never too early. God is never too late. And he is coming again, Jesus. And it'll be at just the right time. In Mark 13, he said, Concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard and keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. He's talking about his return. This is what Jesus says. I'm coming back. 
So God has everything in his hands. God has the timing of everything in his hands, including the return of Jesus. And so does he say, I'm coming back in my time. I'm sovereign. Don't worry about it. Just go take it easy. No, he says, stay awake. That's what he says. Stay alert. The doctrine of God's sovereignty should never lead to passivity. It should lead to joyful service in the fear of God and alertness. Alertness that I am to do my part, that I am to be faithful to God, that I am to respond to him, and that I am to trust him even when I don't understand. As we await his return, we are to live joyfully, doing good, trusting him. He makes everything beautiful in its time. The thing about a congregation like this this morning is that we're all experiencing, there may be macro seasons, like God has a time for our nation, our world, uh, our city. Uh, God may have a time for our congregation. I referred to that a little bit when I introduced the new members. There's times and seasons he's doing things. We're going to talk more about that, what what we believe he's doing in our congregation Um, at this time, what his purpose and what his mission is for us. So there's times, but there's times for individual lives and families as well. And different people in the room feel different things. There are times, people in the room that are laughing today. And there are people in the room that are grieving today. There are people that are celebrating new life that have just welcomed a baby in their family. And there's people that are saying goodbye to a relative who's on a deathbed with cancer somewhere. So we're all at different places there, there are people who are being planted and people who are being plucked up. God does what he chooses to do. So we're all at different seasons. We're all at different times. But here's the one message for all of us. Whatever season you're in, it will change as surely as fall follows summer and winter follows fall. It will change. There's no revival endlessly for all of life. Life is great 24-7 for your entire life. It doesn't happen that way in the Bible. It doesn't happen that way for any of us either. The seasons change. But what doesn't change is the God of the seasons. What doesn't change is our access to the God of the seasons. What doesn't change is the gift of joy to walk through the seasons. What doesn't change is the call to do good joyfully, fearing fearing God in whatever season it is. What doesn't change is that we can pause today and stand in awe and say, God, we are very small And you are very great. And so we, small people, entrust ourselves to you. We see knots of yarn and fabric, but we believe you are weaving a glorious, perfect uh, tapestry. And so we submit ourselves to you. We trust your sovereignty. We do what your word calls us to do. We move forward as we're called to move forward. We obey what we know to obey, but we trust and leave all the results with you. Now, God, give us the gift of joy in the midst of it all, because that comes from you. That's what he says in this passage. Joy comes from God. Help us to eat and drink and enjoy our toil. Help us to suffer well. Help us to persevere well. Help us to trust you in the dry season. Help us to take our joy in you in the dry season. And help us celebrate you in the alive season where things are going great. So whether we are in a drought or whether it is pouring rain on us, whatever season we're in individually, oh God, we lift our eyes to you. You've got it. We take our comfort in you. We rest in you today. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. And Lord, for every Christian in this room, 
We just want to grasp the promise that you make everything beautiful in its time. Lord, we live in a world, a fallen world, where everything is not beautiful. And there is suffering, and there is injustice, and there is loss, and grief, and pain, trial. And we know you'll make it all beautiful. You're working it all for our good. We know that. But we pray today in the process that you would just bring us your joy and your perspective. Lord, give us a peek of the tapestry today. Even Help us to see you and your purposes and what you're doing, we pray. And God, we, for those of us in the room who are suffering, we just pray that you would help us, that you would give us joy and strength. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit www.gracechurchfrisco.org.